Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Greetings, humans. You have entered the command zone, your destination for all aspects of Elder Dragon Highlander. Enjoy your stay. How's it, everybody? Welcome to a very special episode of the Command Zone podcast. I'm your host, Josh Lee Kwai. And I'm DJ. DJ, I'm very excited about this one. I am too. Yeah. This feels groundbreaking. Yeah, this is... <laughs> I mean, I don't know if we want to call our own stuff groundbreaking, but this feels like something that... I will. <laughs> ...that nobody's had really the chance to do before. This is the gameplay stats episode that we've been teasing for the last few weeks... What we've done is we hired a bunch of people to take down certain data points during commander gameplay. We are analyzing over 300 commander games and uh, asking questions like exactly how good is an early soul ring or mana crypt? Uh, does turn order matter in determining a game winner? Which color adds the most to your win percentage? How does budget or the monetary value of your deck affect its chance to win? We've got all those questions, results from the statistics, and more. I got to say, some of the answers are kind of shocking. Yeah, I really like how you put out on Twitter to find out what everyone out there thinks as well. We're going to be going over that, what the community perception is versus what the statistics say. But first, before we get into all that, we need to talk about really the reason that an episode or actually... Spoiler alert, there's going to be two episodes on the, on the statistics thing because we have so much information to go over. But really the reason why these can even exist at all are because of things like our sponsors. If you go to cardkingdom.com slash command zone and use that affiliate link when you order your magic cards, products, singles, anything at all, you're supporting the show and you're really giving us the resources to be able to do stuff like this. There's no way that we could hire data gatherers and we hired a data analyst we're talking about hundreds of hours worth of work just to gather this information all up so that we could be talking about it with you there's no way we could do it without things like card kingdom the affiliate link our sponsors ultra pro is another one that really supports us we've been talking for a while now about the things like their eclipse sleeves and those guild theme sleeves very strong dj not a small dude what are you Try like six four yeah dj's a big guy it, he did the stress test on those uh, guild theme sleeves a couple episodes ago and had a hard time with it. They're good. I like them. So very durable. Definitely definitely check out Ultra Pro products. 
And I want to give an extra big shout out to uh, our patrons. So if you go to patreon.com slash command zone, you can contribute directly to the show. And I'd say they are the most direct reason why we could do something like we're about to do, which again, took a lot of resources and, 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 you know, a lot of time and, and probably the reason why nobody else has been able to do it, honestly, because short of, you know, you or me sitting there for hundreds of hours watching commander games and writing stats down, which would take not only a ton of time, but also like we would have had to start doing it six months ago. Yeah. Uh, and then not even having the expertise to be able to crunch the numbers once we have all the data. Seriously. Because you have to find an expert. Otherwise, you're just basically <laughs> doing bad math. Exactly. You think like, well, I'm just going to watch a bunch of commander games and come up with my conclusions. That's not as good as having numbers and then drawing conclusions from them. And understanding like how statistics work. The, the entire reason uh, that we went out and got a data, data analyst is because I was like, oh, we'll just get the data and I'll do it myself. And literally like the second question I wanted to ask, I did not know how to, <laughs> you know, come up with a real answer from whatever numbers I got. So... That is very important. Again, we call out one lucky patron every single episode, and this episode is dedicated to Philip Garfagnoli. Philip, you rock. Thanks, Philip. I was just looking at Philip's name because I'm pretty sure that's Italian, right? That G-N, Nioli, makes the nya, like gnocchi sound. Sounds good. Yeah, I'm worldly. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's get it right into it because I'm excited. Yeah, you mentioned all the work that went into going through all of these Commander games, hundreds of games. Yeah, we have 313 games of Commander. I want to shout out our data collectors here. So Eric Keller, Ashlyn Rose, the cosplayer, Jordan G., and our editor for the show, Josh Murphy, were our data gatherers. I want to give an extra special shout out to Eric Keller, who was a beast, went through something like 140 games all by himself. Wow. Yeah, that guy was a machine. Again, uh, we looked at 313 games of Commander. And what we did, actually, is we went online onto YouTube and we used the games that were that are the gameplay videos from like the major content creators. So Game Nights is definitely in there as part of the sample size, but I will say Game Nights is a very small part of the sample size because we've only had like 20 something episodes, not even all of those we play Commander. A few of the old episodes we played two games, but I think of the 313 games, it's something like 22 or 23 of the games are from Game Nights. Come on, Josh, make more Game Nights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we also used some gameplay from MTG Mudsta, this is somebody you know. You know Andrew, yeah, right? Guy is a beast. His videos are awesome, and he puts out two gameplay videos a week. Yeah, if you like Game Nights and, and Commander gameplay, I would recommend going to YouTube and typing in MTG Mudsta. That's M-U-D-D-S-T-A-H, and you will find Andrew's videos. And Streamlined gameplay, really, because they take a long game and he condenses it down to 15 minutes. Yeah, that's the great thing I think about the channel is that Andrew really does some editing and manages to bring the Commander game so that you're not watching an hour and a half game. You're taking it and watching it in 15, 20 minutes. Commander Clash is another one we use. This is uh, MTG Goldfish's Commander gameplay videos, and they actually do their stuff on Magic Online. Yep. So that's an entirely different meta an entirely different sort of way to even play. It's interesting to see how that changes the dynamic. And then, of course, another big Commander show that I know a lot of you know about is Commander Versus at Star City Games' uh, YouTube channel. And we've had Jeremy Noel on the show before, and they do paper Commander games, full games, 
and they've done hundreds of episodes. And they have of a that lot show. of seasons. Yeah. yeah. So those are the four shows on YouTube that we took all the gameplay from. Again, Game Nights, Mudsta, Commander Clash, and Commander Versus. And I would encourage you, if you like Game Nights and you like gameplay, to check out all of them because they're all great. Okay. So where am I here? This means that. Also, yeah, yeah. The the bonus of of this is that all our data is also verifiable. So we took it from. You can go watch the games and yeah. find out the same stats that we did. And I should say, we are going to be releasing our full data set at the end of the second part of this. So next week, when part two of the stats episodes comes out, the data will be released. It'll be in the show notes, and you will be able to go through it if you feel like and sort of check our work. Um, okay, so that was how we gathered all the data. And we had a bunch of data points, and each person, as every game they went through, they were marking down certain things that we had on basically a big Excel document. And then we got to the point where like, okay, but we have all this stuff. We need somebody who's going to crunch the numbers and figure out what it all means. And I, I guess that's maybe a little misleading. Really I actually gathered because, because we, he gathered way more data and way more information than we would have even been able to get. Like we watch a game and we're like, sweet. And we write a few things down, but he's able to do complicated things to get the exact information we need. Yeah, I should say it's a little misleading. I didn't wait until the, the data was gathered to bring on this data analyst person, actually. Uh, and his name is Andrew Green. And Andrew was somebody we brought on before we collected the data to make sure that we were collecting the right data that would be useful to him when he was going to analyze it. So uh, Andrew Green is somebody who's been nearly 10 years as an analyst, statistician, and data modeler, currently works at the Harvard Medical School in Boston. And he... Any place you're working that has Harvard in it is probably, know, probably right? pretty good. Harvard Medical, I mean, pretty good. He's also an avid Magic player since fourth edition, has taken some breaks in you know between then and now, like we all have. Yeah. And one of the things I really liked about having Andrew on this project is that he's not a big commander player, hmm. but he does play a lot of modern and limited. And I thought that that was really important to sort of remove bias. Andrew doesn't play a ton of commander, so doesn't really have, you know... He doesn't have a horse in the race. He doesn't have any bias, any reason to want an answer one way or the other. Like when we say something like, how good is early Soul Ring or Mana Crypt? He's not a person that's in the past been like, they should ban those things and therefore is trying to prove a theory that he already has. He's someone that's just like, I have no dog in this fight. Yeah. So I am just going to tell you what the stats say. Um, and in fact, what we're going to do is we had a conversation earlier with Andrew and we're going to play that for you right now. Andrew, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate you coming on the show. I am so happy to be here, you guys. This is a this is a really exciting project. Yeah, we were happy that we found someone of your expertise to help us out. And thanks for doing all the legwork and now uh, we can just analyze stuff. That sounds good with us. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a few questions here we want to talk to you about, sort of about the methodology and things like that. Yeah, so we did a couple of things. Um, one of the things we wanted to be sure of is that we could... Uh, look at preconceived notions that people have about the format to begin with. So, so we wanted to make sure that we were looking at colors. We wanted to make sure that we were looking at things like like ramp and 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 fast colorless man, especially at the beginning of the game. Um, but we also wanted to make sure that we could collect as wide a sample as possible in as little time as possible. Right. So instead of having people look at an entire commander game that takes uh, hours potentially. Uh, we were able to collect some data points from the beginning and some data points at the end and set up a really nice um, data set that we could use and then go take forward and analyze. And, and we honestly, you know, when we first started having this conversation, um, 
we ended up with more really useful data than I even thought we were going to have. So, and, and that's, that's, you know, I, I, we, we ended up with a really nice set of data here. Yeah, it was smart. Uh, and I think you suggested this for us to, rather than get like a lot of specific information from a few games, get certain data sets from a lot of games or as many games as we could get in that amount of time. Um, exactly. Okay, so there's something I wanted you to address here because we did a bunch of online polls that were kind of like asking the question to the community and taking the temperature. It, it was that perception thing that you were talking about uh, a second yeah. ago. Yeah. And we just wanted to sort of see what the perception is out there versus what our data s ends up saying. Right. Can you talk about uh, the term on average? <laughs> because I think a lot of people, it seems like from the responses on Twitter, don't understand how averages work, what the usefulness of them are, what it can tell us, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it, it's important. So there's a couple things here. Like the like the I think the most important thing here is that if you're saying something wins on average 40% of the time, that doesn't even actually mean that thing is going to win 40% of the time. It, it it might be a little higher, it might be a little lower. Um, but also, what's more important is that doesn't affect any single game, right? So you don't you don't go into the game saying like, well, I have a 42% chance to win because of this data point. Um, you never know what's going to happen in one single game. You know, like what you're looking for is you're, is you're looking over a, a span of many, 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 many games. And that's where things, you know, where people say like, oh, it depends if we have this specific card and this specific card. And that, that starts to matter a lot less when your sample that you're pulling from gets a lot larger. And that's where, and that's, and that's where your average is going to start to flatten everything out and normalize everything. Um, I think it's the biggest point. Um, when when people say depends, but it's but it's also you know it, it can be metagame dependent, right? So even things that we talk about here, you might have three people that you play with literally all the time, um, and that might be a different story as well. So you know this is certainly representative of a fairly wide metagame meta that we're looking at, but it might not address you know you and three of your closest friends exactly. I guess is what I would say. Yeah, I think. That's a really important point, which is that when you say on average, it doesn't really tell you the specifics of what's going to happen right now, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Like you look at your hands, and we're going to talk about Soul Ring in a minute here. For that game, when you play Soul Ring, it's like playing in the margins, right? It's not going to play out the way the statistics say every time. Sometimes it's going to play right. out X, sometimes Y, and that's going to average out to the average. Yeah, and nor and nor should you take it too far. Like if we have a data set that says, you know, don't play don't play X card before this turn. That that doesn't that's not necessarily telling you if it's the right play at the time as well either. It's not telling you the right actions to do in any single game, basically. Right. It's like uh, take it under advisement, but don't take it as gospel. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I had another question here. What was the hardest part? about the project and the data analysis and everything like that? So, yeah, I mean, the the, the actual hardest part for me personally um, was was writing the scripts to pull all the Magic Cards data and to to write the Python script to pull all the deck lists from um, from Tapped Out. That's, Sounds very technical. That was, I'm that, glad that was the, Yeah, <laughs> that, that was the actual hardest part for me because I don't do a ton of programming. Um, I do more data visualization type of stuff. 
Um, but in a, a, in a lot of these projects, you know, the hardest part comes down to um, ensuring that you're telling that this you're telling the story that data is actually telling. Hmm. You know, and and you have to be really careful with that because you can twist this stuff. Um, and I'm a huge proponent of of not really twisting this stuff. Um, so you know, it's 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 paying a lot of attention to the data, looking at corner cases, looking at things overall. Oh, I just hit my mic. Sorry about that. Um, looking at things overall, and then and and then looking at things in a in a smaller sample, and and trying to really figure out the true story that you're getting out of the data. I think one of the things that was really great about finding you specifically for this project is that you're a magic player, but not necessarily a big commander player. And so you I'm didn't not, bring yeah yeah you didn't bring a ton of bias about the format. Like you didn't care what data you found. You weren't like I'm trying to prove some theory I have or something mm-hmm. I've said. And right. I think that was really nice to have somebody who's just like, well, this is what it says. I don't, you know, I don't really care what it says. This is what it says. Yeah. I mean, you know, on a lot of projects I've been on in like my professional life, um, I've often been, you know, I, I used to do a lot of project work and me and my group would go in and would just call ourselves like Switzerland. Uh-huh. And we could just be like, we have no horse in this race. <laughs> like, um, you know, I, I honestly just want to show exactly what we have. And, you know, I mean, I play like Commander once. Like, the last time I played Commander was at PAX East. Um, did you win? And that might be, uh, I did not. I came in second. <laughs> <laughs> but now you have all um, this data, so you can use it and win next time. <laughs> I'm going to build the statistically perfect Commander deck after this. <laughs> okay, Andrew, well, we really appreciate your work. We're going to let you go now. Uh, everybody out there, Andrew is going to write up a lot of the methodology and some of the other things about um, all this data. And we're going to have the data available for you next week when we release part two of all this stat stuff. So look forward to that. And you can really delve into, for all you stats nerds out there, you can really delve into what exactly Andrew was doing and how he came to the sort of conclusions that he did. Exactly. And uh, DJ now are going to butcher all your statistics and turn (laughs) them to our own biases. (laughs) That's not what we're going to do. Speak for yourself. Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Andrew. Well, thank you guys very much for having me. Okay, once again, big thanks to Andrew for doing all this work and for coming on the show and explaining some of the finer points of uh, statistics <laughs> and data, data analysis. Okay, so we're going to jump in now to the statistics and, well, I guess let's lay out how we're going to go through everything, right? So we mentioned earlier there were some Twitter polls. That's right. So what we did is we went on Twitter and posted a bunch of polls for instance, our first question and the first data point we're going to look at is how, on average, how big of a difference do you think a turn one, two, three soul ring or mana crypt makes in terms of increased win percentage? So you know we know how we know how valuable and how accurate Twitter polls are, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is just to gauge the community's perception, and actually does a really good job of gauging what people think because we have a ton of responses, and people are just gut reaction clicking on Twitter. Yep, and they also were able to give some comments and we'll read some of those quotes and then we'll sort of take a look at what the statistics say and if they line up with public perception or not. And as I said, some of these, the stats came out and were shocking sometimes. So you'll know that a lot of times it was not what public perception is and not what even we thought. Exactly. And we're going to try to wrap our heads around that, try to figure out what was going on with these numbers and try to explain it. We might not be right, but we're going to try our best. And hopefully the conversation gives us deeper understanding of commander gameplay. 
Yeah, I think that's important to keep in mind through this entire thing. We looked at 300 games, which is a decent sample size, but it's not going to, it's not gospel, right? It's more like it can give you kind of an inclination in one way, maybe clues, but we can't say like, this is 100%, this is the way it is. But it can, it, it can sort of open our eyes to something we maybe wouldn't consider before. I also want to say at the beginning, and this is something we'll struggle with, which is it's very easy and it's natural when you have a certain perspective, and we all do about uh, Commander, to sort of look at stats and your immediate reaction is how can I, you know, if, if that's not what I thought before I saw the stat, how can I poke holes in it? How can I, you know, make it sort of prove the point that I already thought instead of how instead of looking at it and being like, okay, well, should I be reevaluating what I thought before? I mean, I'm always right, so, <laughs> and I'm going to make it known in the comments. <laughs> okay, so the first question, again, is the early Soul Ringer Mana Crypt. We decided that those two cards were similar enough that they should have a similar-ish impact, and we wanted to only look at early turns where you got it, because, again, we wanted to, you know... There's turn, been a- turn 10 Soul Ring doesn't cause the same groans that Turn 1 Soul Ring does. Right. So we want to know what the perception is and what the real numbers are. Right. And there's been a lot of calls in the community, I'd say, you know, a couple times a year for whatever reason, it'll sort of flare up where everyone will get their pitchforks. And for a couple of days on Twitter and whatever, they'll be like, why is Soul Ring and Mana Crypt not banned in Commander? It should be banned. There are calls for these cards to be banned quite frequently. And we just want to see, does the data back up the idea that these are too powerful? All right. Okay. So again, on average, how big of a difference do you think a turn one through three Soul Ring or Mana Crypt makes in terms of increased win percentage? We had multiple choice in our poll. Over 5,000 people responded. So option one was little to none. 15% of respondents said they thought that early Soul Ring made little to no difference. 52% said they thought it made a moderate amount of difference. 29% said they thought it made a lot of difference, a big difference. And then the final choice was actually in the other direction. It was 4% of respondents said they thought it decreased your chance to win. It was actually disadvantageous to have a turn one to three soul ring or crypt. So we're talking about a vast majority of people uh, over 80% are like, oh no, it's it's important. Yeah, and 52% thought it was a moderate amount. So a pretty good amount. And one third of respondents thought it was a big advantage. Yeah. Okay, so let's read a few quotes from people. Um, Eves McRae, who I've met at GP Vegas a few years ago, said, I voted little to none. If it helps you get such a big advantage that you become a threat to win the game, everyone teams up on you. If it doesn't, then it shouldn't affect win percentage. So Eves is saying that the multiplayer aspect of the game sort of course corrects for naturally for powerful things. We see that sometimes in our own games. Yep. So that's a a good comment. Uh, Evan George says, assuming only one player gets Soul Ring or any T1 ramp, I think it makes a big difference. If a player can get out two of their main artifacts slash enchantments at the same time before anyone else can get an answer, they have probably won that game. Uh, Spook Frost, sorry, we're using Twitter names because that's all I have, says, I voted moderate because the person with the early soul ring gets ahead and oftentimes, oftentimes becomes a threat, so the answers slash removal get used on them. So sure, they can get ahead and maybe win quickly, especially with combo, but they're also likely to get kicked down the most. So, this idea of getting kicked down the most, uh, commander self-correcting, that seems to be a common theme. Yeah, it's similar to what Eve said, although Spook still thinks that it is a moderate advantage. Yeah. Uh, Stefano Bibodi writes, uh, Soul Ring is actually the best card in commander. Being able to do a turn one Soul Ring is nuts. 
Everyone else will have to keep up to you, not to mention if you follow up that up with a signet or another mana rock. So Stefano is saying that like, yeah, if you get something, you know, big off it early, like a signet, you're going to be in good shape. So uh, before we announce the numbers, oh man, I pulled a DJ. I didn't make it off the table. <laughs> uh, DJ, I want to ask you, before you saw the numbers, yeah. if, you know, if like two months ago I'd come to you and asked you, this question, what would you have said? By the way, uh, Josh, whenever he got the data back, he would come to me and he's like, so DJ, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is good because I wanted you to lock that in for when yeah, I eventually Yeah, but it was, like, it was a gut reaction. My gut reaction is it matters a lot. Yeah, you think, would you have voted for the a lot category I mean, I here? did, yeah, I voted yeah. for the a lot category. And a lot, we should say, was a, a 6% increase in your win percentage, given that it's a four-player game. Oh. I should say all of these are four-player games. We didn't want to do threes and fives and because if you don't control for the number of players, then all your numbers are skewed. So we assumed a four-player game. All things being equal, at the beginning of a four-player game, each player has 25% chance to win. Obviously, factors change that. What decks you're playing, oh, yeah. how experienced you are, and all, all kinds of, of things. But blind, you know, in a vacuum, everybody has a 25% win percentage. So if a Soul Ring or Mana Crypt gives you a five or six percent bump that's actually a 20 percent more chance to win the game than before it's pretty big and it's, and i thought that yeah. yeah and i would have said i think moderate which is uh, you know similar i i would have said it's definitely an advantage it's not huge but it's it's there it's clear oh yeah if you get a turn one through three soloing or crypt you have a better chance to win the game than you did before by a decent amount and then the stats came along, and Andrew told us after crunching the numbers, and we should say that there were 313 games, and we saw a turn one through three Soul Ring or Crypt about 90 times. Which and that makes sense if you're doing the math that every deck has a Soul Ring in it, and you're basically saying, well, then there's four players, every deck has a Soul Ring in it. You know, by They'll the have drawn three. 10 cards by turn three. That's a... 10% chance per player. Yes, 90 would be about, 90 to 95 would be about what you expect. We got 90. Which is good. Yep. And here's what we found. We see a clear negative correlation with Soul Ring players winning only 21.6% of the time. That means a Soul Ring or Mana Crypt early, according to these stats, decreases your chance to win by 3.4%. That's a pretty big number. That's 3.4 percent yeah that's that's a what you is, give up a percentage point to each one of your opponents and a little more i mean which doesn't sound like a lot but remember you're starting with a 25 percent chance to win yeah. so that's like an eighth of your chance to win is gone jeez <laughs> it's pretty crazy but that's that's one card at one time so yeah. that's like a that's i mean i didn't expect this i did not expect this at all um so but as we but as you pulled the numbers out you know, we started thinking about it. And when you, when you get the, that's what we're here to do. We're here to look at the data and then think about it. And I think I have an idea of where I got my misconception from and then maybe why it doesn't apply to commander. Okay. Uh, let's go for it. So yeah, I play a lot of cube and yep. that's where you see soul ring a lot besides commander. And in cube, it's borderline the best card in cube. Yeah. A lot of people argue it's the best card. And it really is amazing because a turn one soul ring turns into a turn two planeswalker, uh, a turn three five drop. And I think that that's really important because in cube, you're you're racing to tr to get to four mana or five mana or six mana. And then after that, you should close out the game. But in commander, you're not really racing to four mana. You're really racing to like eight, nine or 10 mana. Mm -hmm. 
And so this early boost could give you an advantage, but if you don't use it properly, then your opponents just catch up by playing a worn power stone on turn three or a cultivator Kadama's reach along the way. So you need to take advantage of that soul ring immediately to sort of catapult you ahead or else they're just going to catch up a little bit later. So that means that it could be an advantage for you, but it often isn't in the long run and people manage to even it out. But that still doesn't sort of address the fact it, that why is it negative for you? Yeah, why it should is it put ne- you a negative? little bit ahead, right? Yeah, and I think that gives us a clue as to, and there's always this sort of saying out there that multiplayer is self-correcting. Mm-hmm. It's self-policing. And I think this is evidence of that. The comments said it. The the yeah. Twitter poll said it. Yeah, so if somebody gets, and, and I think if you... If you think back to your commander games, you can think of times where somebody gets an early soul ring, a turn with soul ring. It never happens and no comment is made about it. Every time somebody does that, everyone's like, uh, and then how many times are you like, well, <laughs> yes. I'm going to attack somebody. I'm going to do something to somebody. I'm going to do it to the person. I'm swinging at turn one soul ring right yeah, there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think that's pretty common. And It's so, totally common. You're right. And so the threat assessment meter is automatically put, the target is put on the soul ring player. And that's actually enough to, to tip the scales towards negative towards you know it being like yeah you get a mana advantage but because you get a perception threat assessment disadvantage it actually counterbalances it do you know one other thing that i've noticed in some commander games and also might contribute a small amount to this is that i think people keep sketchy hands on the back of soul rings yes yes i think people look at their hand and it actually doesn't quite have all the land drops they need or doesn't quite have something that curves them out, but they're like, oh, I got that soul ring. And so they actually keep something that they shouldn't off the power of the soul ring when in our format, the soul ring is just a mana ramp spell. It's good. It's great. Yeah. But it's it's just a good ramp spell. There's certainly going to be games where you go turn one, soul ring into signet, Turn two, oh, I have yeah. five mana, and I just am off to a crazy start. But notice or, that you're using that five mana. If you don't use that five mana in your next turn, then what have you done besides painted a target on your back? And this goes back to what Andrew was talking about, about averages, right? It's not about in a specific situation, do I get the signet or not? It's on average, mm-hmm. how often do I get that signet? And then can I parlay that into further advantage to snowball out of control? The average case scenario probably isn't that that happens. It's probably like more modest where it's like, yeah, I get a couple man advantage for a few turns until the explosive vegetation or whatever comes out and people kind of even it out or somebody destroys it or people have attacked me enough because of it. It's really like a bunch of categories. I like what you said about keeping bad hands. That probably does encourage that to happen sometimes. Like a, a hand with no soul ring has an X chance for you to keep it a bad hand. A, ter- an, a hand with soul ring has an X plus, you know, 10% chance for you to, you know what I mean? And it some people might do it way more often. Yeah. It, I, I think our friend Jimmy might keep a band, bad hand or two. <laughs> Jimmy's the classic ancient <laughs> tomb. Sensei's dividing top. No other lands. I'm good. I, He's like, snap, I'll get there. Don't worry. Snap keep. I'll get there. Yeah, don't but do that. I, but that might actually lead us into our next category with like, well, what do we do with this information? Yes. Maybe you just we all realize that soul ring is just a good ramp spell and that we don't lean so heavily on it in the early game to sort of make our hand good. Yeah. I think that with all this data, it's important to say, you know, what's actionable about the information. Mm-hmm. What do we do with it? How do we, how do we, you know, it's great to have the information, but what's, how's this going to change how I deck build, how I play anything at all. Make us better commander players. Yes, exactly. That's the whole reason to do all of this. Um, yeah. You could look at, Hey, listen, it takes away 3.4% chance for me to win. Should I take Soul Ring out of all of my decks? 
I mean, if it no, <laughs> no, the answer to that question is no. It's because it's it's obviously a powerful card. Yeah, but you have to. Yeah, you're gonna have to alter how you play with it. Keep don't don't keep hands just because soul rings in it. I I do this already, which is maybe don't play it early unless you know exactly how it's gonna go like i got that signet in my hand i have that mana vault in my hand yeah. i have something to take advantage of it because the downside is not going to balance out the bad side unless i really have some powerful ways to use it and in which case it's you know and i've done this with krypton things often where it's like i just don't even play it till turn three just because i don't want to bring in the heat that it's going to bring in and this was just not because of statistics you know that i would do this it was just because I don't like becoming the target. But it turns out, I think, that becoming the target is actually more of a disadvantage than maybe we think. Another thing that you should do is, I think the table is correctly uh, focusing the soul ring. Yep. You should keep doing that. Yes, don't stop now. <laughs> because you're like, oh, well, he's going to lose. The Obviously, he played a soul ring. The data said that just reduced his chance of leave the soul ring person alone. <laughs> no, so like, I think that as a, as a commander table, like we're doing a good job keeping the soul ring people in check. Yep. Uh, if you are playing Soul Ring, consider, you know, sandbagging it for a little while until you can use it. If you can use it on turn one into turn two, great. You're using that mana, ramp out, smash people. But if you're not using it, you know, make sure that you're using your ramp appropriately and then don't keep bad hands. And and we've, I mean, we've all been in games where you somebody draws their mana crypt or their Soul Ring on turn five, six, seven. And when they play it at that point in the game, nobody no goes, cares. oh, Soul Ring, because it's just too late for, it's only scary early. Later on, it's just equivalent of a Gilded Lotus or something, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's slightly better sometimes, but it's not the huge, like, place a target on you that, that it is early. Okay. The next data point. I like that one, by the way. I, I think we shouldn't ban Soul Ring or Mana Crypt. No, I don't think so either. I, and I... I never not, thought that we should not, ban them. We're not banning people. That's, yeah. that's one thing that we're kind of both firmly in the same camp of is, like, let less bannings let's play with our cards uh we can correct for it and i think soul rings the perfect example of us being able to, to correct for it if we have the tools available then the format everyone the metagame will correct for it and i think that they've done it with soul ring yep all right so the second data point we're looking at here is the reason this entire study even happened it's player turn order yeah this was we were just talking and you came up to me and said hey dj how much does going first matter? It was something I noticed because, you know, Game Nights has given this weird opportunity. Opportunity? It's made this weird thing happen, which I'm sort of forced to study a commander game very intensely every month. And what I noticed over time was that I thought it seemed like the person who was going first in the game was winning at an inordinate amount, just a higher percentage. Now, Admittedly, and I even said this to you when I explained my theory, that my theory was going first mattered a lot more than we ever thought about, and mostly because I'd never thought about it before. But I, I admitted that point. Well, I'm looking at like 15, 16 games, though. Yeah. The sample size is so small that you can't draw any conclusions. And and that actually made me think, well, how can I look at more games? That's and right. That's what got us to this to this point. So the question that we had a poll for was, on average, in a commander game, how big of a difference do you think going first makes in terms of increased win percentage? Do you want to run down? And, yep, yeah, 57% of you said little to none. 31% said a moderate amount. 9% said a lot. 
and 3% said it actually decreases your win percentage. So most people thought that it wasn't a big deal, little to none. Yeah. And few people thought it was an advantage, but not a huge yeah, one. little advantage. And yeah. basically nobody thought it was bad or a big advantage. I mean, those, the, those are small numbers. Yeah. So uh, let's read some of the quotes here. This is from Val. In my experience, going first or last makes pretty much no difference, unless it's combined with a massive head start into a lockdown by turn three, so pretty much none, smiley face. Yeah. Uh, Rich said, I feel being the first to ramp or the first to recover is a big lead in Commander. Being first, you hit cultivate mana first, and from there you can take off while others have to respond or try to keep up. Uh, AJ Hewitt said, I think it honestly decreases win percentage because you're the first person that everyone has eyes on. And you know... If I didn't know about the Soul Ring data, I would be like, that sounds crazy. But knowing the Soul Ring data, that's a very... Seriously. Yeah, it, it's it's like a real thing. You're the first person playing that threat, the first person. You always have more land drops than everyone else. And so everyone's kind of looking at you sideways a If anybody's bit. likely to play a creature first, it's you. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, oh, Clank says, I would wager it's a subtle advantage, but an advantage nonetheless. You get to draw first turn. So especially if you hit every land drop, you always have more resources first. Oh, Clank has a cooler voice than everybody else. <laughs> he said, no, he said, nonetheless. So he needed a little bit of a different voice. <laughs> he was highfalutin. So, okay. Uh, we see a lot of different perspectives, obviously, and we're going to see that on all of these. Let's so you ask, came to me. Let's yeah, go back let's, to that same story. Cause you came to me and said, what, what is the what's the effect of going yeah first? what do you think the effect of going first is zero effect none yeah you thought it was not a thing and not i would i would say before i started noticing what i thought was something you know from game nights i had never ever even thought about going first being anything that mattered i'd never been in a game of commander where at the end of it i said man that person went first that's why they won I, it had never crossed my mind because the way the games play out there so long at the end of the game, you barely even remember who went first. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting to see that uh, according to Andrew, the stats revealed that player one has a 30% chance to win the game and players two, three, and four were basically flat at a 23% chance. So player one took basically 2% from each other player added to their total and so they enjoy a seven percent advantage over the other players whoa which is big that's a, again that's a 20 percent increase to their chance to win the game just sitting down just by going first no cards nothing just at all by going first pretty crazy and it was something that when we started to talk about it, it made more and more sense to me, even though I'd never thought about it. Like when you when you revealed that information to me, I just was like, yeah, I don't understand. Like, yeah. just, like what? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly the numbers are wrong. <laughs> yeah, so we started going and, and trying to come up with reasons. And I think it's related to the early Soul Ring Mana Crypt thing in that most people think that Soul Ring and Mana Crypt crypt early are powerful. And why is it powerful? Because you get an a mana advantage. So over the course of the first eight or nine turns, you're up, you know, a mana here, two mana there. It adds up and by turn eight or nine, you could be up seven or eight mana on everybody else. It's a common thing in, in Magic and in games. Whoever spent the most resources, whoever spent the most mana will win the game. So think about going first. Somewhere around turn nine, 10, 11, when the game's close to wrapping up, the big plays are going to be made. Mm -hmm. 
Player one is untapping, and they're about to spend their maybe 80th through 90th mana. Everybody else has only spent, you know, let's say player one untaps, they got 10 lands, and everybody mm -hmm. is basically even, you know, in a, in a vacuum. They're about to spend their 90th mana. Everybody else has only spent 80 mana. They're 10 mana up on that one turn. Oh, okay. As like a big, one big influx at a late turn that they get a bunch of mana that nobody else has had access to yet. So basically being being first in the early game when you have one extra mana before the other person or two extra mana or three extra mana doesn't really matter. But as you get later and later in the game, being first to crack in with eight mana, first to crack in with nine mana, first to crack in with 10 mana, as the game keeps progressing, that keeps generating more and more an advantage that's harder for the other players to catch up with. That's a really good point because I get that influx of mana and then everybody else gets, if I don't, yeah, if I don't win the game two. there, if I don't win the game there, then you, the next player two gets a chance to equal me, equal me, equal me. But then I get that chance again. They're now the I'm, first to, they're the first yeah. to be able to, you know, make their big play, double spell, do the big explosive things that we were talking about that are game winning. I mean, I'm getting my 80th through 90th mana. That's expropriate. Mm. Right? That's tooth and nail. Yeah. Those are game winning plays. Or that's two plays. That's doubling season and my planeswalker. Yeah. That's my ability to do that before anybody else. And at a point where they've probably been trying to keep up, they're that's right. they're less likely to have wanted to waste a turn by holding mana open to answer your stuff. And so it's just a, I I do believe that once you start analyzing it, it makes sense. Going first does feel like a huge advantage. And it's just the way it's it's kind of like what you said earlier. We're not a format where we're racing towards four and five drops. That's right. We're racing towards eight and nine drops. A soul ring doesn't help you cast expropriate any better than someone else's worn power stone does. Exactly. It it does help you cast it, but you get an extra mana on turn two, an extra couple mana on turn three, an extra but you at no point can sort of save that up and spend it on, a, on an expropriate. Mm. I mean, unless you have like Omnath or something like that. But in general, you can't. Whereas the turn one player gets all that mana at once and can cast a big thing or two big things and really take control of the game or just end it before anybody else can. Interesting. I also think that this statistic is a pretty big clue as to why Vidalcan Orrery is so good. Oh, Josh has pulled out his soap, soapbox. Let's hear it. <laughs> Because we've talked a lot on the show about how Vidalcan Ori allows you to change your seat at the table. Mm -hmm. And if where you're sitting, what turn order you're in is so important, is such a big advantage, Vidalcan Ori allows you to change that dynamic to at least insert yourself in a way that screws up that player one dynamic and often can put you into the position of the first player. I don't know if I, I, don't know if I agree with you because we were talking about um, not just... We're talking about the mana advantage mostly, right. about being the first person to have access to that mana. And with Vidalcan Orrery, you, in order to keep that mana up to insert yourself in the turn order, you do have to skip a turn and hold up your mana. Well, I'm thinking of the scenarios which are often, which is where you might need to answer something. You don't know, right? Like we said, the, the on turn 8, 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there, player one untaps. And that's their chance they could play the doubling season into the Planeswalker. Mm -hmm. And if they do, it's hard for players to match it. But then if they don't... There's, there's no check on player one unless they pass their turn or else they're holding stuff up. Right. Yeah. Player two untaps in that same situation, but player one is a foil to them. And player three has player one and player two that was a foil to them has had e equal amount of mana. Player one doesn't have that check. The thing is, people have to put themselves at a disadvantage in order to check player one. Right. Whereas player one has the first chance to either 
to either check the other players or, or try and or win. Try and win. That's right, a so, powerful position. So player four could on like turn eight and nine, just do nothing, hold their answers up, anticipating that player one's going to get that big untap and do something. But if player one just goes, eh, normal play, then player they've four, jumped, then they've jumped the turn order. Player four screwed because they didn't do anything. They didn't advance their board in any way. Yeah. But Alcan Ori allows you to have your cake and eat it too. It allows you to check the player, the player one, and if they don't do anything, you can move into their position. Really make your big play, knowing that you're safe. Turn order is just so important, and player one is always in the position. It's like the blackjack dealer versus the blackjack player. If you mm -hmm. act last, yeah. you just have an advantage because you're seeing what everybody does. So you might not... You you will have to sacrifice a little bit of a man advantage to be able to jump jump turn order. But you don't have to sacrifice it with Vidalcan Ori. Well, they, they see player one will still get to untap before you do with Vidalcan Ori. Like they still get that from going to eighty to ninety mana. They still get that extra mana before you do with Vidalcan Ori. It doesn't generate you extra mana. But it your just, man is probably open. It it is probably open. Yes. So that means that you become a check on player one. You don't suddenly generate that that extra 10 mana about, about that going first does unless basically player one or someone else does nothing. Then you get to jump in in the turn order. Exactly. Well, yes, you have, I, th I think I would rephrase what you're saying. You have the ability to be a check on player one. Yeah. You don't have to because they might not do anything. You have to check. And if they don't, if they have a sub, like, a, like not a very good play, and you can go through and sort of take that turn off in terms of your mana, then you do get to jump in. Yes, now be, you're jumped now in, you in are, turn. You are player one now. Basically. Where and you I can use that influx of mana. Because uh, sometimes people at turn eight, they don't make that big play yeah. that wins the game or anything like that. And so no one has to check them. They didn't advance the board. They didn't do anything really. They dirtled a little bit. And then suddenly Vidalcanori does say, well, you kind of wasted your mana for that turn and now I get to jump in on that turn order. I and again, we're talking about like player 1 doesn't win every time. They just have No, no, no. We're they just, just have a slight the, advantage. The 7%. Yeah, and so it's just saying like some of the times, yeah, it works how we say. It doesn't do that every game. They just have a better chance at having that turn when they're going to act, do something big and nobody else can respond than the other players do. They just have a natural advantage from going first. It's it's not 100% advantage, it's 5% yeah. advantage. By the way, one thing that that you should know is as we're having this conversation about Vidalcanori, uh, pay attention to the the mana costs and where we're talking about in terms of turns. We're talking about turns 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. We're talking about super late game with Vidalcanori. Many people yell at Josh in the comments about Vidalcanori, but if the game ends on turn 5... And I have always said that. I understand yeah. why CEDH players don't like it at all because it doesn't do anything when you play it. And actually, the I think that the win percentage for going first would go down if uh, if it ends on turn five. For sure. Because maybe because maybe there's a little bit more correction. There's a and little bit soul more. And ring and mana crypt goes go up. up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, it's kind of interesting that we've pulled from all of these different groups, all of this different meta games, uh, because we're kind of seeing a big average for what could happen. And it seems like with these big averages, we're getting to a lot of mana. We're getting to the end game. Well. Hey, look at you, Mr. Segway man. So we're going on to our next... Well, no, no, I, I want to ask... Sorry, we didn't ask sort of an important question. So okay. back to turn order matters, regardless of Vidal Canori. Oh, yeah. We'll put that, that, that discussion aside. Going first appears to be a pretty decent advantage, a, a big advantage, I would say. Yeah. Originally, when I saw that, my thought was like, this is big enough that we maybe need a rules change. Like maybe we need to 
say like the person who goes first doesn't get to draw a card. You know, something like that. Just because that's a, it's a 5% of, you go from 25% chance to win to 30% just by winning the die roll at the start of the game. That doesn't feel right. But then I, (laughs) but then I saw the soul ring and the mana crypt data and I was like, you know what? We probably don't need a rule change. What we need is a mentality change. We can correct for that. Yeah. You know, I was talking to Josh Murphy, who is our editor for the podcast, and he made a really smart comment, which was he said, it seems like it's really about threat assessment. Mm. So Soul Ring Mana Crypt, those set the alarm the alarm bells ringing, right? <laughs> Somebody got an early Soul Ring. We notice it. We talk about it. We attack that person. We take action. Nobody that I know says that person went first. Therefore, they're going to be my default target. Nope. I'm going to... You know, and it won't take much. Maybe it's just a removing a key thing somewhere around the you know turn four, and five, six. The Twitter six. poll proves that. Yeah, the Twitter poll is a perception. It is what people are thinking, and so people aren't attacking the or punishing the turn one player. So it may just be solved by us just knowing this data and being aware of it and saying like, all other things being equal, I'm just going to try and knock player one down a peg to bring that person down to where the rest of us are. I also think that another actionable item is we can sort of deck build to try and capture the same effect. Uh, we've Vidalcanori. Vidalcanori. <laughs> uh, but also ways to get huge influxes of mana like player one does in the late game. So we talked about high tide a little while ago. Also mana geyser. Uh, ways to sort of double spell or triple spell or at an appropriate time when there's few checks on you, be able to explosively get a lot of mana, get an influx and affect the board. I really like that. That's the idea of like, okay, if that's the advantage turn one is getting, how can I build my deck so that I kind of get a virtual turn one around turn eight, nine, or 10? Yeah. And and the rituals and things like that feel like a really good way to just be explosive, do something, play my two cards or my big card before anybody else and, and sort of leapfrog the other players for just mm-hmm. that one second. Um, I like that a lot. So... That can inform deck building and play. And you do kind of leap. If you double up your mana, like you are kind of leapfrogging them in terms of your position on the board, your your resources spent. Okay. Speaking of re- resources, the third data point we're going to look at, and we did not do a poll for this one because I'll be honest, I wasn't sure how to word the question in a way that would be in any way useful. Yeah. So for this one, we're, there's no Twitter poll. Um, it's the power of lands and land drops. So... We marked down as one of our data points the number of lands at the end of the game for each player. Mm -hmm. And then we could determine the average amount of lands for the winning player and then the average amount of lands for the losing player. So we see that winning players average about 10.9 lands at the end of the game and losing players average about nine lands at the end of the game. So there's about a two land gap. But I want to... This isn't very surprising to me. If you asked me... Does the person that win have more lands in the battlefield? I'd be saying, yeah, yeah, they do. I want to say really quickly here that because a player can get knocked out before Mm. and the game can continue for a little while, um, a lot of times, like let's say you were knocked out on turn 10, well, you can't hit your land drops anymore for the rest of that game, and that's going to bring the losing player's average down a little bit. We see that in most games, players tend to die pretty close together Mm. there's not often that like the game goes on for four more turns after a player gets knocked out usually they fall in rapid succession either all at once or within one or two rotations of the table uh however there is still a gap there you know 11 versus 9 i think is actually a decent gap two lands is quite a bit 
I before we I get. I mean, it's it's two lands. Maybe it's not that that much of a difference. It's a soul ring amount of lands. I mean, that's that's true. And over, I mean, w- when I'm thinking, oh, it's two lands, it's not that big of a deal. But when you magnify that over eleven turns, because the eleven land drops, let's say without right. ramp, uh, then that actually means that you're generating a ton of mana. Again, we don't know when those extra lands come to play. If they come yeah. in, you know. Uh, there's. I want to pause really quick here. I think this does give us a clue about the average length of a game. Ooh, that's right. Because if the winning player has, you know, 11 lands at the end of the game and the losing player has nine, I think we can sort of guess at... It's not ending on turn five. <laughs> right. Most games are probably, my guess would be around 13, turn 13, based on the amount of lands in play. And editing game, game nights, you've kind of seen that as well, right? Yeah. So what we learned in game nights, I think there's just a, a misperception out there that games go a lot longer than they do. People think games are going 18 to 20 turns, when in reality they're going 13 or 12 to 14 turns, basically. Uh, and this is what we see in game nights all the time, where we'll be at the end of the game and a lot happened, and we're like, man, how it went to 14 turns. You know, it's, it's you just rarely go very. You rarely see turn seventeen, no matter what you think, because turns are taking so long at the end mm-hmm. that it feels like you know one person's turn is actually what was equal to everybody's time spent on turn four. So it feels like oh, we're twenty turns in when really you're thirteen turns in. I think that that's important information too, knowing the average game length, because uh, you're probably not casting that world spine worm in your deck. You're, you probably shouldn't have multiple 10 and 11 drops unless you've built your deck in a very specific way. Maybe you need to pay more attention to curve because taking off, you know, turn six or turn seven, yeah, is not what you should be doing. And I think this lines up with our theory about going first also, and that being somewhere around turn nine, 10, you have that mana that nobody else has. That's around when the game's getting locked up. It's not that you necessarily win at that moment, but a lot of, we know how games go. You don't usually have a moment where you just win. There's often a moment where you virtually win the game and it mm-hmm. takes a second to wrap it up. Yeah. And everybody knows. And if they don't stop it, you 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 win. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting information. Again, we're just guessing. So there's nothing in the data that says how long the games go. We're just looking at the land counts and, and making a guess. And I think it's probably close. And one thing that you mentioned is that uh, earlier is that to get to 11 land drops... Uh, let's say you're getting to 11 land drops, uh, 13 turns. Yeah. You, you need to have some sort of ramp or card draw in that equation to make that math work. Yeah. I think that if your goal is to get the most amount of lands in play, well, I think we're skipping over section here. Let's just say the big, the big data point here that we found, and this was the, the single biggest indicator we could find that would sort of point you in the direction of who is ultimately going to win the game. So it wasn't if you played an early soul ring. It wasn't if you went first. It was the player with the most lands or tied for the most at the end of the game won the game 42% of the time. Wow. So that was a huge indicator of if you would win. Now, again... And remember, Again, there's, three, there's three opponents. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, I'm 40, 42 and the other one's 58. No, no, like it gets divided. You're out. 42. Everybody else is what 18 or something. Yeah, in that it's scenario. a huge increase. Yeah, you've taken so much win equity from them and pull it to yourself by just having more lands. And again, the player at the end of the game was there at the end, and some others may not may have been knocked out earlier. And so I think that makes sense. But player two is always going to be up to the same amount of turns as you, basically. Yeah, that's in, right. Unless you went first, in which case maybe you hit one extra land drop than they did. But. <laughs> 
back to what you were saying, because that's a huge number. 42% is like, you're nearly 50% to win the game in a four-player game just by having the most lands in play. And it shows two things. The importance, which we have posited in past episodes, the power of green land-based ramp. Mm-hmm. Like, we thought this was too powerful and a problem in the format, and I think this statistic points towards that a little bit. Well, Josh, I, I got the solution. You don't need ramp. Uh, you just need 100 forests. <laughs> I'm Sorry, 99 <laughs> forests. 99, 99 forests. Forest, yeah. 99 forests. Omnath. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, that's a way to get the most lands to play is uh, explosive vegetation, sky shard claim, cultivates Kodama's reach, rampant growth, nature's lore, all that stuff. It's right? not punished the same way an elf is or the same way a mana rock is. And we know this. We've talked about it before. And I think a lot of people understand that that is a powerful strategy that because of the social dynamics in Commander is just the normal checks and balances, i.e. mass land destruction, are just frowned upon. And so it's just kind of a loophole in the system. And I think that's part of it. And I also think just hitting your land drops is so important. And that makes card draw so important and this is something you started to talk about a minute ago yeah what i brought up is that if the game ends on turn 13 and also the average number of lands in a winning game is is like 11 then by the winning player yeah Yeah. that's 20 cards that you have access to total 20 cards okay uh just if you draw one per turn exactly if you draw one per turn if you start off with seven all that good stuff uh if you're getting to 11 lands on the battlefield with just your land drops, then you are not affecting the game in other ways because that's only nine other cards that you have access to. So in order to hit this, these numbers that we're talking about, 11 lands, finishing the game before turn 15, all that stuff, you need things that get lands out of your library, card advantage that way, and also card advantage to get more things into your hand so you have more action to be able to actually affect the game. Yeah, you're, you're not going to play, like you said, uh, 99 forests in your deck. You're still going to play 37, 38 lands. In order to hit land drops, you're just going to have to have enough card draw that you always have a land in your hand. And it's very, very important to hit land drops. Uh, I think it's something that's easy to overlook when you're deck building and playing. But if you look up and it's turn 10 and you have six lands, you're in trouble. Yeah, you're... You need to have eight lands at that point. You need to have nine lands. You need to have hit your land drop on almost every turn to really have a chance to win games. Um And then, yeah, we need to figure out something about green land-based ramp. And I think, again, the early Soul Ring Mana Crypt data shows us the way, Mm. which is I don't think, and this is what Josh Murphy said again, it's a question of threat assessment, really. If multiplayer is self-correcting, we have not corrected, I don't think, for this, just like we haven't corrected for the player going first. We don't attack people enough just because they have the most lands. We attack them because they have something scary. Yeah. And two extra forests. We don't think that's scary, but it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think that we do have a little bit of inter- improper threat assessment. And that's just because we look at what's in front of us, what's on the board. And we ignore lands. We keep them to the back of our play mat. And we play out these cool cards over here. And people uh, like are influenced by them way more. Uh, one also thing that I think that players aren't as influenced by is how many cards you have in your hand. Mm-hmm. I think that having a full grip is super, super dangerous and that people should be more cognizant of how many lands they have and how many cards they have in their hand. Way more so. You mean how many cards your opponents have and how many lands? Yeah, how many they have. Yeah. Yeah. And so if your opponent has three or four more lands than you and has a full grip, you need to be way more scared of that player 
than someone else who has, I don't know, a, a big dumb angel that's going to smack you in the face. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think we haven't adjusted for that. And I'm certainly uh, guilty of sort of that misthread assessment, I think, in my own play. And that's why a lot of land-based decks are very strong and why, you know, all that land ramp is very strong because we don't punish it at all. And we probably should be. If somebody yeah. ramp it gross into cultivate, they should become the default target for the entire table. That's But sometimes actually, they're not. Be, that's better than soul ring, what they yeah. just did. And yet we don't act like it is. Yeah. Okay. Moving on to, this is going to be the final data point for this episode. Again, we have much more and we're going to do a second episode, uh, but we're already long. So here we go. <laughs> uh, it's deck types. So we did do a poll about this. So, because we had all the deck lists for all of the games that we studied, because That's an incredible amount of data, by the way. Yeah, so Mudsta, Commander Clash, uh, Commander Versus, and Game Nights. All most of the time, there's there'll be a, once in a while a deck list that didn't didn't get in or whatever. But like most of the somewhere. decks are there, and so we were able to grab the deck list, put them all um, onto Tapped Out, and then. Andrew was able to create some programs. He talked about a little, that was the most difficult part for him to sort of scrape all that data, compile it and, you know, give us some, some interesting data. And, and we've got a lot more than what we're going to go through on this episode for the next episode. But one thing we could do is sort of look at, we could designate decks into a deck type. Now by this, I want to say we're only able to designate them according to card type. It's hard to look at a deck list and say, is this a combo deck? And really hard for a computer it's, program to do that, to be like, oh, this is a combo deck or this is a group hub, hug deck. Yeah, this is a storm deck. This is a blah, blah, blah. It's tough. Voltron, token, a computer can't really look at that. But what it can do is say like, there are X amount of this card type in this deck. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what we wanted to look at here. So we designated decks into five categories. It was creature deck, instance and sorcery deck, artifact deck, enchantment deck, or planeswalker deck. And then we could tell the relative win winning rate of those deck types. So full disclosure here, if a, if a deck had more than 25 creatures, we called it a creature deck. If it had more than 25 combined instants and sorceries, we called it a spell deck, an instant and sorcery deck. If it had more than 25 artifacts, we called it an artifact deck. For enchantments, we lowered the number to 20. If it had 20 enchantments, we called it an enchantment deck, just because enchantment decks don't tend to have quite as many of that permanent type. And they have creatures yeah. and other things that help support the enchantments. And so they don't need quite as big of a critical mass of the, that specific card type. And then Planeswalker or Super Friends decks, we said if there was 15 or more Planeswalkers, we called it a Super Friends deck. Again, Super Friends decks don't tend to have 30 Planeswalkers in them. That's a lot of Planeswalkers yeah. in a deck. Uh, yeah, I think you're actually, it's diminishing returns at a certain point. Like you yeah. don't want that many. Okay. So again, the poll online was which deck type has the highest win percentage in Commander. Uh, do you want to read them? Yep. 31% okay. of you said instant and sorcery decks. 27% said creature-based decks. 26% said artifact-based decks. 10% said enchantment-based decks. And 5% said planeswalker decks. So the peach said enchantment-based as, uh, as it is not as easy to stop or remove as creatures, artifacts, or other spells. Some make it even harder for your stuff to be removed or make you untouchable. So I like this statement by the Peach in that enchantment is the toughest permanent type to remove. Mm -hmm. And remember, we're talking about win percentage of each of these, not how much they're represented. Creature decks are obviously going to be the most played, but do they win at a higher rate than the other ones? And, yeah, and Peach definitely. makes a good case, case there. Jacob Anderson says, I think artifact decks, because there are several good commanders, increasing the number of artifact-based decks played, and several victory conditions that can be executed in one deck. Combo, go wide, go big, alternate win cons. 
I, I personally like this because when you think of artifact decks, you're like, oh, I actually know the commanders that we're talking about. And they're good commanders, Dreddy and Felden and all these other great things. So this just seems to match up with what I see in the metagame. Yeah, and that, that's a really interesting way to look at it from Jacob that I appreciate. You know, enchantment-based, now that we reevaluate re based on this, maybe isn't as good because up until recently, there hadn't been a good enchantment-based commander so maybe the enchantment-based decks weren't as strong and probably that not enough time has gone by for them to really filter in. And a lot of the games we're analyzing are over the last few years. It's not mm -hmm. like they're all from the last like two weeks. Yeah. Um, okay. Ted McLuthern says, instant and sorcery decks are harder to stop if no one is playing counter spells. Creature-based strategies are very easy to stop and everyone builds for that. Mm, yeah. Uh, Matthew Miscomer says, Creature-based, as infinite loops such as extra turns, extra combats, or infinite attack are most useful with creatures on the board. So before we uh, reveal the data here, what would you have said? Uh, I said instants and sorceries. I think that interaction is very powerful, and instant sorceries have some of the best effects available. Yeah, I agree. That's what I would have said, instant and sorcery. I also think if you look at uh, competitive lists, they're usually very high in the instants and sorcery category, and tutors are almost always instants and sorcerers. Oh, you're right. So, okay. So let's go to the reveal of the stats here. Man, I'm throwing papers left and right. Okay. So the stat, what the stats say is that instant and sorcery won 28% of its games. Creature-based decks won 25% of their games, so mm -hmm. statistically even. Enchantments, artifacts, and super friends, I want to say right off the bat, were a small sample size. So take these numbers with a total grain of salt. Um, as you should take all the numbers we're talking about today because that's just the way statistics work. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, but these ones particularly are, are smaller than we're even comfortable with. Yeah, we're just it's interesting to talk about, but I don't know that we can draw conclusions. This is more like reading tea leaves. This yeah. is like, you know. Uh, so enchantment-based decks they won only 16% of their games. There was only 10 decks in the sample that were designated enchantment decks. Artifact-based decks, 16%. Again, there were only 16 artifact decks in the sample. Super Friends decks won 44% of their games. There were only, or 44%, yeah. And there oh my were, gosh. There were only four Super Friends decks in the, uh, in the sample. So. I'm ignoring the sample. I'm just going out and building Super Friends. I, I, would, <laughs> I will say that in the poll... Super Friends only got 5% of the vote, mm -hmm. but Super Friends decks are very powerful, and I definitely would have thought they were low on that poll in, in that Super Friends decks tend to be pretty strong. I've seen a, a lot of them. Cassius loves to play Super Friends decks, and he has very strong ones. By the way, I just watched an MTG Mudsta gameplay. Super Friends deck one. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's not in the data because it, like just, it just happened. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Uh, Super Friends deck one. Super Friends decks do seem powerful. I think we've we've been disparaging about Planeswalkers in the past, but that's like one Planeswalker. We can we can talk about that yeah. because I don't think a single Planeswalker is very good. Uh, even let's take Jace the Mind Sculptor, boogeyman of many many different formats. Clearly powerful. If you play it in Commander and you brainstorm, that's a four mana brainstorm that just sits there, and, and then your dies. opponents look at you and they're like, "Attack your Jace! Attack your Jace!" It's just so vulnerable. But Super Friends seems to overcome that by just kind of amassing a board full of them. And then when you get multiple activations out of Super, out of Planeswalkers, then they become really good. You were talking about this sort of um, effect of playing Planeswalker after Planeswalker after Planeswalker. Yeah, I think if you play one Planeswalker, 
it's going to get killed. The table goes, okay, let's team up for a second. Let's kill that thing. That's pretty normal. The problem with Planeswalker decks, Super Friends decks, is that they play one, the table does that. Then they play another one, the table does that. Then they play a third one, and somebody goes, this time I'm going to do something else to somebody yeah, else. Someone There's else, a numbing turn quality. six, and yeah. someone else is also doing something, and it looks more powerful than the Planeswalker's single activation. And there's a natural tendency. We just destroyed the Planeswalker three times in a row, so the fourth time it just doesn't feel as scary as it, as it did. The first time it feels very scary, and there's just a numbing quality to it, so I think that's one of the reasons Super Friends decks sort of eventually and then you amass a bunch of things because you've gotten a huge disadvantage mana disadvantage by playing substandard sorceries every time you play planeswalker and it dies before it's your next turn and you can't activate it but as soon as you have three or four on the battlefield and you get multiple activations a turn then you're skyrocketing in terms of value yeah so okay but again that was only four decks uh, yeah. if you count your anecdotal evidence of the latest that's MTG right. Mudsta video then that's five decks but still um, and it won, so small, the percentage is going up. Yeah, that's up. what I mean, small sample size. <laughs> uh, we, I also want to say that decks that were designated no deck type, which means there were a lot of decks that had like 20 creatures and 20 spells and mm -hmm. you know didn't didn't cross the threshold in any category, those won about 26% of the time. So they were statistically even too. I think that's interesting too, because I would think that those would be more balanced decks. Yeah. It's like, hey, I'm doing my thing and I've included all sorts of different types of spells and creatures and stuff. And it just comes out as average. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not sure there's anything actionable about that to be taken. Uh, you know, this I actually is just think interesting. it's I think it's nice because it's like play what you want. Yeah, like instance and sorceries doesn't just dominate everyone all the time. I mean, clearly, um, Super Friends does. So let's just <laughs> let's just leave it. Let's at just that. hate. Let's hate on Super Friends. I mean, you could look at this and say that enchantments and artifacts do look slightly underpowered, but that hasn't been my experience. And because of the sample size, we can just kind of like for now keep an eye on it. Hour of devastation. It hits Planeswalkers. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, the set? Oh, the card. No, the card. <laughs> so there's a related stat here. We were able to determine in each game, we wrote, we um, we notated how each player died as far as what knocked them out of the game. And so the last stat we're going to talk about today is how do players lose the game? Out of, of these 313 games, we see that combat damage was responsible for 47.69% of the knockouts. That's just regular damage from creatures, uh, not commander damage, just combat damage. Sounds about right. Half, yeah. the, ti half the time, someone s smacks you to death. Yeah. It's a big chunk. Uh, Non-combat, non-combo was the next category at 27.05%. So 27% of the time you lose to... So, so I want to say this was non-combo, meaning non-infinite. Mm -hmm. So if it's... Perforos is out and somebody plays 10 creatures, but they're, they're not in some sort of loop where they're just able to play infinite creatures, then you just lost to damage from Perforos, which is non-combat, uh, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Combo was responsible for 10.67% of the knockouts, and this was infinite combo only, so Kiki-Jiki Pestermite would be infinite. And that we would not count that in the combat damage category, even though technically the Pestermites are swinging, but because you went quote-unquote infinite, we put that in the combo category. Uh, Sanguine Bond Exquisite Blood, yep. that's a combo. Niv-Mizzet, Curiosity-type stuff, that would be a combo-type thing. Um, so that, that was 10.67%. The next one is commander damage, and this was uh, responsible for 5.89% of knockouts, which, I'll be honest, and I've been disparaging of commander damage in the past, is a little higher than I thought it would be. It's still a small amount, yeah, like somewhere around 1 in 20 deaths on average, 
will be to commander damage. But I mean, if you're watching videos on the internet, you're going to see it pretty often. You're going to see it sometimes, yeah. Yeah. I, for my own playgroup, it's definitely lower than that. I would have guessed somewhere around 3%. Well, one thing you mentioned, we'll talk about the your playgroup and the metagame in general after this, but I mean, that is going to influence these numbers a lot because these numbers might not be your metagame. It might not actually be Josh's metagame either because it's the metagame of um, Commander versus MTG Mudsta, uh, Goldfish, and Game Nights. Right. And yeah. I like that we pulled from a bunch of different metas to try and flatten out the data as much as possible. But, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, a lot of stuff is going to be meta-dependent. And the next one shows that, right? So Infect is the next most common way to die, and which was only 3.37% of the knockouts in the study. And uh, I, that's, so out of 300 games, that's about 10 or 11 people knocked out due to Infect. Yeah. Like, literally four of those could be Craig. <laughs> Craig, that, you are the entire Infect metagame. Congratulations. <laughs> well, not the entire, but he's he's a big portion. And since he's in my playgroup, that's going to skew my view of things. And oh, that's yeah. sort of how you have to look at the data, too, uh, you know, for some of this stuff. So commander damage could have been a player in one commander clash or versus or... Um, People like, people like Mudsta Voltron. That, 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 that likes to play that strategy and just does it at a higher rate. Well, and also we are still dealing with people creating content and a lot of the people that we're looking at, they're uh, making sure that they have good stuff to show you. So they're not going to run Infect game af episode after episode Unless after episode. Unless their name is Mr. Infect. <laughs> but like Commander yeah. Clash, yeah. like they're going to, they're, if they play Infect one week, they're not playing it the next week. Right. At your local game store, you might have someone that brings Infect every single time and that changes the numbers. Okay, the next one was Mill, which was only 2.74%. Every single time Justin Parnell just getting milled out? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Happened a couple times and that's the whole thing. Uh, and then Other which were usually alt-win conditions like Felidar Sovereign, uh, Helix Pinnacle. And Helix those, Pinnacle. Those kinds of things. Yeah, the DJ loves the alternate win conditions. That was only 2.42% of oh. how players lost the game. So <laughs> it makes me sad. It's like the bottom well, of I mean, alternate win conditions. But you knew it was going to be, right? Yeah, like, I know. You know there's, only, there's only like a handful. There's like 20 of them in Magic, so. I mean, honestly, the takeaway I would say from this is combat damage is going to happen in most games. 50% of knockouts are due to that. Well, not quite 50. I'm, no, but look, if you do combat damage is 47.69 and commander damage Which is, is combat, combat damage. Yeah. Infect is kind of combat damage too. Depends, but yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. Chandra's but, ignition can definitely get around <laughs> that. Definitely. But like... Your deck has to be able to handle combat because 50... If you count commander damage and combat damage together, it's like 54% or 53% of knockouts are that. So you're more than 50% likely in any given game to die to that. Uh, Non-combat, non-combo is something you have to think about. And combo is happening, you know, one in 10 KOs. So yeah, it's not, I mean, some people are like really adverse to combo and really afraid of it. And it doesn't seem to be really killing people that often. It's not super prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. As far as again, this meta goes. yeah, well, these four metas. Yeah. So I don't know what's actionable about that other than, Something we probably already knew. Make sure that you can deal with combat damage at the very least. Because you're just likely to run into that. Yeah. Yeah. Also, people won't expect it when you mill them out, so you should mill them out. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to do, but they will not be ready for it. That's true. Uh, okay. So that's going to do it for part one of our gameplay stats episode. On next week's episode, we're going to be going over some more of our findings, including how budget or the monetary cost of your deck affects win percentage. You know, DJ, a lot of people... They like to say that Commander and Magic in general is, quote unquote, pay to win. 
But we're gonna find. Yeah, we're gonna find out is that true or not. We're also gonna look into the color statistics. So what color adds to your win percentage the most if it's in your deck? You know, um, uh, right now the online poll that we put out shows that fifty one percent of people think that blue increases your win percentage the most. What what color would you vote for? Uh, I voted for blue, uh, but actually after looking at some of this data right here, maybe green because mana is so important. Maybe green is the is actually edging out blue at the top of the list. Yeah, I would actually guess green myself uh, before having looked at the numbers. Can I guess Simic? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question because we are also going to look at color pairs. Ooh, okay. So do the colors change when they're paired with certain other colors? And then we're going to look at number of colors. So is it more advantageous to play a two-color deck versus a three versus a four versus a five I think versus it's mono? interesting when you're going into the, like the... The two, three, four, five, because a lot of people see one color as like, no, but it's, it's bad. Right. Uh, but knowing the difference between two and three and four, getting more access to stuff, but also stretching your mana base, I think that's going to be really interesting to figure out. And then, again, because we have all the deck lists for everything, we can look at what cards are showing up the most in winning decks. So Soul we're going to... We're going to, yeah, <laughs> probably. We're going to. Also, wait, no, it's actually in the most losing decks. <laughs> <laughs> it's in every deck, so it's going to show up in some of the winning decks, too. Um, it's actually not in every deck, which is interesting. And we're going to be able to compare what? those numbers to EDH rec and see, like, these are the ones that are supposedly getting the most play, oh, but here's the ones that are actually cool. winning the most. Now, we didn't notate every card that was played in every game. We're only going to be able to speak to what cards are in the decks, but it's still going to give us some interesting stuff to talk about. Okay. To the listeners. I'd like you to answer that question I just asked DJ. So which color do you think increases a deck's win percentage the most and why? Do you think it's blue? Do you think it's green? Do you think it's one of the other colors? <laughs> Are you crazy? You just shove Are the other three down at the bottom. Yeah. We're like, which Listen, one of blue or green do you think yeah. it is? No, it's not I, white or red. I mean, there's no way. So <laughs> black maybe. I don't know. Tell us what you think. Tell <laughs> oh, us in the comments. White. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, if you want, if you like this episode and you like what we're doing here, Help us have the resources to continue to do stuff like that. And it's really easy for you because I'm not asking you to do anything you wouldn't normally do. You're watching a Magic podcast. You're building decks. You're playing. You need cards. If you just use our Card Kingdom affiliate link, which is cardkingdom.com slash command zone, when you get that stuff for your decks, you are simultaneously making your decks awesome and B or two or why did I want to go to multiple choice? I have no idea. But you are simultaneously <laughs> helping us Keep this content on the air, keep game nights on the air, and be able to do cool stuff like what we're doing right here. So if you like that, please support us by supporting our sponsors. Our other sponsor, Ultra Pro, you know, there's the Shockland Playmats, which we don't have in front of us, but the uh, the Steam Vents one is really, really sweet. I just like all the new art from the Shocklands. They're, it's amazing. Guilds of Ravnica, really cool art. All that theme stuff, because Ultra Pro has the license agreement for a lot of it, is on deck boxes, sleeves, everything. Also, they have these cool banners, this History of Banalia banner that is up behind DJ. A lot of people have been asking if they can have that one. Unfortunately, we only have one, so I'm not giving it away. But if you ask it your LGS, hopefully they can get it in stock. So ask about those. Okay. Now it's time for the end step, where we talk about something cool outside the world of magic. I have something cool, DJ. Okay. Okay, so hardcore history is something I've talked about many times on Wait, the show. We're doing hardcore no, no, history no. again, Josh. We're not. I'm just I'm just <laughs> prefacing all this. We're okay. Not hardcore hardcore history is great. We're on the same side on that. Yeah, you I like love, hardcore history. Love it. Okay. Do you like Game of Thrones? I love Game of Thrones. So there is, and a listener told me about this, and I want to complain right now because. 
the thing I'm about to talk about has been around for a couple of years, and I'm just now finding out about it. And you guys should tell me about this stuff. Do way us a earlier. solid, guys. Come tell on. us about cool stuff. You let me not know about this for years. So it's a podcast, and it's called Hardcore Game of Thrones. HGOT. Isn't it? Isn't it Game of Thrones hardcore enough? Yeah. Like they need to make it more hardcore. This is somebody talking about the first of all the history of Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. the history of. Westeros and Essos and, and all the Aegon the Conqueror and all that stuff. There's that they, so much depth there. Yeah, that they talk about in the books and and there's been side books and things written and on all this stuff. Well, this is somebody going through and doing hardcore history style storytelling recap of the history of Westeros and Essos and all that as if it were real in Dan Carlin's like in a like parody approximation of his <laughs> voice. Like the guy who's doing it, I forget his name, is like, does a pretty good Dan Carlin and like right. the same the same um, the same cadence and the same like devices that Dan Carlin that's, will use. That's pretty funny. Yeah, but if he just uses the same attention to detail that that he uses, then this is going to be a great podcast. Well, he makes similar type of like sports analogies or like talks about pop culture references <laughs> in relation to helping explain <laughs> like what's going on in the Game of Thrones history. If you have heard me talk about hardcore history and you like it you should listen to hardcore game of thrones if you've heard me talk about hardcore history and you're like history i'm not interested in that but you think game of thrones is cool then you should go listen to hardcore game of thrones it's freaking sweet josh is just gonna get you hooked back over onto hardcore history then maybe you'll try out <laughs> hardcore history but you don't have to if yeah. you just like game of thrones this is awesome i've read all the books and i know basically the history but i'm not like a super but the thing fan is that there's there's so much depth to them that you read the books and and also, by the way, you've read the books over a huge amount of time. Yes. Uh, and there's so much depth that you don't really understand all of the nuance that gets involved in this. Yeah, and I'm not like the super fan that reads all the ancillary stuff. I'm yeah. just reading the main books, watching the show, that's it. And a lot of the information that's presented in Hardcore Game of Thrones is chronological in a way that the books don't do. They give you pieces here and there as side dialogue from other characters, and you're sort of trying to piece it together in your head, but you don't care that much. You're just on the main storyline. Unless you're like Alex Kessler or one of these people that's like super into Game of Thrones and knows all the stuff. Like, you know, I knew some of the little things like who Jon Snow really was because that's a thing that you're like, I want to figure that out. Yeah. But a lot of this little side stuff, you didn't know. And now when I hear it in the, this podcast, I'm like, this story is really good. The backstory for all this stuff is really cool. So, Hardcore Game of Thrones. Awesome, check Josh. it out. Something else you should check out, speaking of Alex Kessler also, is the Masters of Modern Podcast. That's our sister podcast. And they talk about the modern format and all things competitive magic. Uh, Ben Bateman, I should mention his name as well, is one of the co-hosts. They have video now on YouTube. So if you type Masters of Modern into the YouTube search bar, they're going to pop right up. I'm also going to take this opportunity to say DJ has a YouTube channel. It's called Jumbo Commander. If you go to Jumbo Commander on YouTube... DJ has a bunch of deck techs. He he tells you what cards you should pick up a rotation. I well, just did a I just did a budget Sasea Orochi Ascendant, which is a huge green big mana deck that plays a ton of forests, and then you just explosively create like fifty mana, and it's budget, so it's awesome. And then coming out later, I'm dabbling in some arena stuff. Arena Singleton. Oh yeah, I saw feels, you had Arena Singleton yeah, video. Yeah, it feels kind of like Commander, and uh, there's going to be another video out with Arena Singleton coming out. So, Jumbo Commander. Jumbo Commander on YouTube. You know, none of us can get enough of DJ, so you probably want to go over there and check it out. Okay. Um, oh, our, our editor. Yeah. Yes. Our editor's Josh Murphy, and special thanks to Jeffrey Palmer at Living Cards MTG. Murph. 
You're awesome. Good job. Good job with the quote about the threat assessment thing. Do better threat assessment, everybody. Okay. Uh, yes, and thank you, Jeffrey, for the... I don't know what the this is from. The spinning hedrons right there. I think it's, it's from sweet. Commander 2018. I'm not sure. I don't remember. <laughs> we have too many now. It's <laughs> beautiful. Right. Well, thank you, Jeffrey. And thank you, everybody out there, for listening and watching. Bye, everyone. Peace. For further inquiries, send an email to commandcast at rocketjump.com or ask us on Twitter at JF Wong and at Josh Lee Kwai. See you later, alligator. Greetings, humans. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.